the Endurance House Podcast. We are back with episode number 11. Ryan Maher here and super pumped to bring you this week's episode. Um, to be honest, when I shot this person an email after reading her race report, um, it's kind of a long shot. It's like, ah, she's entirely too famous and I've heard her on too many other outlets and read too much of her work and there's no way she's going to do this. But, um, I'm so thankful and amazed that, um, Sarah Lavender Smith was willing to recap her cold water rumble 100 for us, um, her hundred miler there with air Viper running. Um, I've been listening to Sarah on ultra runner podcast for years and reading her work in ultra running magazine. And I run far, um, you know, absolutely love her on ultra running podcast and honored that she took the time to re recap her race for us here. Um, if you've ever run or read any of her reports, it's, she's such an amazing writer and her reports are so great. Um, and I, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised probably not surprised at all, actually, um, as how this plays out in audio format. But just a little background on Sarah for those of you that do not know her. She's been running ultra since the mid-2000s, been coaching runners for the past seven years as well. She's 51, the mom of two, lives in Telluride, Colorado. Sounds pretty nice. Um, Like I said, you probably have heard her on Ultra Runner Podcast. Um, She joined that uh, show a lot with Eric Trans when she was in California. Also writes for Ultra Running Magazine and I Run Far. So you've probably seen some of her work there as well. The other thing, she is an author. Um, she's got a great book called The Trail Runner's Companion, a step to, step-by-step guide to trail running and racing from 5Ks to ultras. It's a bit of an ultra running info book with a little bit of inspiration in there as well. Definitely check that out. Um, some other credentials for Sarah. She won over, um, won the hundred mile, 170 mile grand to grand ultra. So self-supported stage race also has a sub 24 Western States, 100 to her name. Um, but we're going to dive into her race report. Like I said, for the cold water rumble 100 that took place, um, in Phoenix Aravipa race down there. Um, and I'm going to let Sarah, get after it here. Um, like I said, you guys will absolutely love this. I felt like I was, um, listening to an audible book and I mean, she just, it's amazing. She does such a great job. So I'm going to let Sarah take it away, but first we're going to jump over to our sponsors from Buffalo Bluffs hemp farm and hear a little bit from them and then get into it with Sarah's Cold Water Rumble 100. Before we get started, I am super pumped to introduce our first ever sponsor. Uh, Maybe it's too early in the game for a sponsor, but I reached out to good friend Kurt Schilling, who started Buffalo Bluffs Hemp Farm in 2019. Um, I've I've been fortunate to get in on the... um, CBD salve that they created prior to starting 
um, the full business and have loved it and unfortunately still have some. Um, the great thing about what they're doing down there, and I think this is something super unique to the CBD um, and hemp game that a lot of companies aren't aren't providing is they're growing their hemp on a farm that um, received no chemical herbicides, pesticides, or fertilizers, and the soil um, didn't have any tillage methods in years um, on their farm. So, you know, you hear all natural, and you're probably not really getting that from a lot of places, but Buffalo Bluffs, they are literally taking it to the natural state. Um, so you know you're getting a quality product from them. So um, if you're in the market for CBD or hemp, um, please check them out at buffalobluffshemp.com. Um, like I said, I use the salve for muscle and joint relief. They have tinctures. They also have smokable flour. Um, and they're just great people and ultra runners. So you know that what they're creating down there is geared um, very much so to athletes um, as well as just the everyday person looking for a little bit of relief. So check them out. We have a code for 20% off for your first order. And that code is simply the endurance house. I will link to their website at, in the show notes and please support Buffalo bluffs. They're doing great things and they're doing it the right way. And we're happy to support them. This is a story I wrote in late January of 2021 called my very mixed feelings about running 100 miles. When I crossed the finish line of the Coldwater Rumble 100 miler a week ago, after 26 hours and 25 minutes, I felt emotionally flatlined. I've cried at finish lines before, overcome by the feeling of triumph over adversity and the sheer drama of the human effort. And I've done a cartwheel over the finish line, so full of giddiness and joy that I wanted to show off with a final ta-da gesture. This time, however, I could barely muster a polite smile and a thank you to the handful of volunteers standing around. To my stalwart pacer who had just accompanied me 40 miles through the night, I kept saying, I'm so glad that's done. I'm so glad I finished. I'm so glad it's over. Which begs a question, why do something if the best part about it is ending it? It reminds me of the times I skied in two small boots with a numb big toe, pretending to the to enjoy the experience, but inwardly suffering and eager to finish, and then feeling so relieved after all those hours to get those boots off. Except this 100 miler felt much more uncomfortable than two small ski boots. It's hard to articulate what was so unpleasant and discouraging about it, because objectively, and in hindsight, it seems like I encountered pretty normal problems for a 100 miler. Achy feet and a few blisters, fatigued muscles that stiffened and became less mobile after each of the 20-mile loops we had to run five times, low energy and sleepiness from insufficient calories caused by an inability to eat much or stomach the caffeinated gels I planned to consume during the second half, a stupid but not catastrophic gear malfunction, and raspy lungs. That's not too big of a deal. It's what I signed up for. But right after I finished, I felt so done, as in done with 100-mile ultras. 
A text I sent my friend shortly after the finish captures my headspace then. The text reads, Thanks. It was pretty miserable. I'd like to talk to you because I'm seriously thinking that will be my last 100. I feel like I just damaged my body so much. The best parts were sunrise and sunset and seeing Noe and listening to music, but the actual running, I was really ready to be done at 100K. I had a lot of problems and was under-trained and also stupid mistakes like headlamp malfunctioning and getting chilled. And this is the first time ever I literally could not eat. I had a gag reflex every time I put something in my mouth. I'm really thinking or rethinking high-low 100. I was so much happier after the Whiskey Basin 57 miler. I just don't like going through the night. I don't know if I can do this to my lungs and muscles again. Just these five loops left my lungs totally inflamed and gunky. I'm just feeling kind of depressed now. I met my goal of finishing and proving I can do it, but it was ugly. My time was decent. 2625, but I had a plan for a four mile per hour average for 25 hours, and I should have been able to do that if trained. And to my sweet son Kyle, who texted to ask how I was, I unloaded in this text to him Everything hurt after 50 miles because I was so undertrained. It was a very rocky course, and my feet were blistered, and I kept having cramps in my legs, and my knees were aching. I was not prepared for the heat. I also tripped and fell a couple of times. Then I had a shitty 40 miles at the end in the dark because my headlamp failed. And I had just one little handheld flashlight and I got chilled in the low temperatures. And I couldn't eat anything. I kept getting a gag reflex. It wasn't a very pleasant experience. I'm so glad to be done. And that might be my last 100. I really think I prefer 50 milers rather than going through the night. So I started this race report with the ending and all that belly aching negativity because it's too easy and tempting to look back misty eyed and sanguine, reaffirming that the experience was worth it. Because of course we want to believe it was worth it after putting in so much time and effort, but it's important to remember the feeling of ugh and the ambivalence of wondering, why did I do this? Will I ever do it again? Let me try to answer the why do I do this question? I signed up in early November, shortly after completing the Whiskey Basin 57 Mile Ultra, another stellar event like Coldwater Rumble put on by Aravipa Running. I finished that November race with a big smile, fist pumping, was on a high for many days. That run felt empowering, and the novelty of racing again during the pandemic felt like a special treat. I wanted more, please. So I looked at Aravipa's calendar and latched onto the idea of the Coldwater Rumble 100 south of Phoenix in Estrella Mountain Regional Park in early January. It'd be a New Year's resolution run. It'd be a motivator to train through winter. It would be my 100th ultra or marathon run since my first marathon in 1995. And wouldn't it be cool to have the 100th be a 100? Most of all, it would be the confidence boost I need to do the mountainous 100 miler this summer, the High Lonesome 100. I've been haunted by the fact that two years have passed since I'd finished a 100 miler. Although in that time, I finished and won the 170 mile Grand to Grand stage race in 2019. And I did the 180 mile week long double Everest challenge last May, but that's apples to bananas. 
I got it in my head that I'm rusty and I needed to prove I can still nail a hundred miler now that I'm over 50. About a week before the cold water rumble, when I was finally starting to drift to sleep in spite of anxiety about the capital violence, my eyes flew wide open and I said out loud, oh shit. It suddenly hit me for no particular reason that I had been doing the math wrong in my head and actually three years had passed since my last 100 miler which was the 24-hour New Year's event when I went 115 miles on New Year's Eve in 2018. I DNF'd the 2018 Uray 100. Then I severely injured my back with fractured vertebrae right before the 2019 Bighorn 100. And then my goal 100 for 2020 was canceled. So it has been three years and I really was rusty. Preparation is the key to success, said my first coach, Alfonso Jackson. I prepared logistically. I made a detailed plan to achieve a best-case scenario of a 25-hour finish because I figured 24 hours was a little too ambitious given the technicality of the course and my inability to train specifically in a desert environment for it. I also lined up a terrific pacer and crew team, my friend Soon Chul Choi and his girlfriend Naomi Lee, who didn't mind traveling to Phoenix because he had to be there for work anyway. They made a smart, generous, cheerful, and depending, dependable pacer crew duo. So I had that going for me. But I failed to put in the work of adequate training. I ran two ultras in November. The 57-mile Whiskey Basin followed by the 50K Dead Horse in Moab two weeks later, but I did not sustain high-volume training for the six weeks between Thanksgiving and New Year's. I confronted the reality that training in winter in snow and sub-freezing temperatures while wearing a thick jacket and traction devices on my shoes is rather slow and difficult, and I was limited to plowed forest roads since the trails were inaccessible due to snow. Note to self, do not sign up for a January 100 again. Take time off from structured training in December. I did three lackluster 20-mile training runs in December. My weekly mileage hovered in the 40s and 50s, whereas normally for 100-mile training, I get up to 70-plus miles per week for several weeks. I planned an extra long run in late December of 37 miles, or approximately 8 hours, and I cut it short at 27 miles and a little over 5 hours, totally discouraged by fatigue and lower back pain. So I lined up to start the Coldwater Rumble 100 at 6 a.m. on Saturday, January 16, with trepidation balanced by determination. I realized that to traverse the 100 miles, I had to make the finish non-negotiable. I eliminated quitting as an option. I only needed to remind myself of the disappointment from that 2018 URA 100 DNF to harden my resolve. So I actually felt pretty confident I would finish no matter what. I just feared the experience. The route features a 20-mile loop through desert with only about 1,400 feet of elevation gain each loop. That sounds easy, but it's a deceptively difficult course due to the terrain and reportedly much harder than Aravipa's Havilene 100, which also is a five times 20 mile loop course in the desert. Many parts of Coldwater Rumble are rocky. One stretch features some deep sand. Numerous gullies forming big, deep ditches intersect the trail. So you have to slide down an embankment and scramble back up the other side. <laughs> 
The route is fully exposed, so sun beats down and reflects off the light-colored sand, making it feel hotter than the high 70s temperature. At night, the temperature drastically drops below 40. And it's January, with a new moon hanging as a thin sliver in the starry sky, so it's really dark for more hours than a summertime 100. The sun does not rise until about 7.30 a.m. and sets around 5.45 p.m. Looking back, as much as I recall the discomfort and discouragement, I also remember the good times. When I started in the pre-dawn darkness in a small wave of 20 other runners, the small wave starts were part of COVID precautions, I felt smooth and self-assured. For the first 90 minutes until sunrise, I had to focus intently on the trail to avoid tripping and to follow course markings on the unfamiliar route. Ahead of me, around mile five, a woman went down and moaned while clutching her knee and dabbing blood. Her mishap inspired a corny but effective mantra that I inwardly repeated through sunrise. Concentrate, doing great. Concentrate, doing great. The three separate twilight hours of the first sunrise, then the sunset, and then the second sunrise the next morning were probably my favorite three hours on the course. It's difficult to describe the beauty of an orange band of light on the horizon creating silhouettes of the mountain ridges and the tall saguro cacti and the wash of a pink hue progressively lighting up the darkened landscape, or conversely, at sunset, dimming the light. I didn't bother taking a photo because I knew it wouldn't do the scene justice, but these pink and orange twilight hours filled me with awe, which in turn lifted my spirits and renewed my energy. I finished the first loop as planned in four hours, averaging a 12 minute per mile pace. I deliberately went out faster than I knew I could maintain because I needed to bank time before slowing in the daytime heat. And I don't regret that strategy. The five miles per hour pace, the first loop felt fine. I headed out on loop two thinking of of another favorite mantra with the play on words obvious. So far, so good. So far, so good. Loop two, I started to bake. First, I felt the heat in my feet, which warmed up more than usual because I wore black fabric gaiters on my shoes to keep out the sand. Reflective white fabric would have been smarter. Heat plus sweat plus friction equals blisters. And sure enough, I felt a couple sprout on my toes. Then my fingers started to swell like sausages, which was a bad sign of stress only a quarter to a third of the way through this event. Swollen hands can result from overhydrating without adequate salt because the body pulls fluid out of the overly diluted bloodstream to restore the proper salt balance and stores that fluid in intercellular space, space making fat fingers. But I thought I was getting adequate electrolytes from sports drink and gel, so who knows why I became so puffy. It's likely that every blood vessel in my body dilated as much as possible to keep blood flowing to my muscles and to my skin in an attempt to cool off. By 2 p.m., as I approached the end of loop two, my body felt like a car engine straining up the grapevine near LA in triple digit heat. When my pacer soon troll met me at the entrance to the main start finish aid station and asked what I needed, I said, shade and the towel soaked in ice water. I also told him not to tell me where I was in terms of placing in relation to others. I truly did not want to know. I entered this event telling myself, I am not racing, I'm finishing. 
I knew if I got caught up in the competition, I risked blowing up. Thankfully, neither Soon Troll nor anyone else ever mentioned where I was in the ranking, so I had no idea I was one of the top women, and I kept my non-competitive, stick-to-my-own-plan plan. I hunched over in some shade of the aid station, and Soon Troll and Naomi draped my head and shoulders with a towel dripping with ice-cold water. It was just what I needed. I managed to eat some potato chips, chug a whole can of LaCroix sparkling water, followed by a whole can of Izzy Berry soda, and I lathered myself in more sunscreen. Loop two took me about four and a half hours, which is what I had planned, so I wasn't falling behind my goal yet. I headed out on loop three feeling much better, looking forward to the twilight hour before sunset. As on loop two, I enjoyed my playlist for loop three. When I felt discouraged and when my feet hurt every time I kicked a rock, I focused on the song lyrics. If music didn't make me feel better, then I focused on the cacti. I'm fascinated by the shapes of the tall saguaro cacti, which stand like tree people. And the shorter cacti come in a fascinating variety. Some were hollowed out web structures as if the cactus plant had died and left a cylindrical skeleton woven like a net. If I could focus on the details around me, practicing mindfulness, then I could keep making forward progress. Another mantra became, all that matters is this mile. All that matters is this mile. I felt as good as I had all day during the twilight hour because my body temperature cooled off and I could run more comfortably while soaking in the sunset glow. Predictably, after the light disappeared and I switched on my headlamp, I slowed considerably. Coming into the midway aid station with about five miles left of loop three, so around mile 55, I tripped and fell hard on my hands. I was okay, but that fall rattled my confidence and made me even more tentative about running in the dark. I reached the main start-finish aid station at the end of loop three, only about 10 minutes behind my planned schedule, around 7.40 p.m., I budgeted extra time at this stop to eat the equivalent of dinner and to put on extra layers of clothing for nighttime. I was in a better mood because I was excited to have Soon Troll's company for the final two loops. In the light of the aid station, I looked up and registered a face, totally unexpected and somewhat, but not entirely familiar, because a mask covered his signature mustache. When I heard his voice and realized who it was, I felt my face nearly break with a smile. It was Noe Castagnon, an old friend, everybody's friend from the Bay Area. He seems to turn up everywhere. He and I last ran together at that New Year's 24-hour event in San Francisco when he showed up at sunrise to run some laughs with me, repeatedly yelling, Fuerte, corre, fuerte, corre. My Spanish came surprisingly naturally, given my tired mind. Noe, estás aquí? De verdad? Me alegro de verte. Que sorpresa. No, he speaks perfect English, but he has always entertained my attempts to practice Spanish with him when we see each other. Seeing him made me feel reconnected to the ultra community in a way I haven't for quite some time. When none of the food options seemed appealing, Suntrol offered me a piece of pizza, which tasted surprisingly good. It would be my last significant bit of food for the next 12 hours. Soon Chul and I headed into the night. As we hiked the first rocky hill, I realized I felt stiff and tired after the high of my reunion with Noe, and I was grateful for Soon Chul's company. 
I honestly don't remember much about Loop 4, except it was nice chatting with Soon Chul and playing tour guide to every segment of the route since he had not run it before, but I was by now thoroughly familiar with it. I also stopped repeatedly to pee. I think he was shocked by how much and how frequently I had to urinate. I myself was kind of shocked. I knew the scientific explanation, which was cold diuresis. My blood vessels were constricting in the chilly nighttime air and blood was flowing to keep my core, uh, to keep my core warm. And this stimulated my kidneys. I hadn't peed much during the day due due to stress, but I had stored gallons of fluid. I couldn't believe how much I had to go on loop for. While it felt relieving, it contributed to my stiffness and let a chill creep into my extremities while having to start and stop so frequently, unable to get into a rhythm of sustained running. Midway through loop four, a food aversion also kicked in. Goo gels, which I normally always can suck down, seemed so nasty that I stopped trying them as an option. The nicely prepared quesadillas and homemade potato soup at the aid station also got stuck in my throat. I literally did not want anything in my mouth. Ginger ale and diluted Gatorade became the only things I could swallow in small sips. We made it to the end of loop four, mile 80, around 1.45 in the morning, which was only about 15 minutes off my plan, so I was still doing pretty well but I felt so depleted and grumpy that I decided to give myself extra time to rejuvenate and try to eat. The blisters that had been talking to me were now shouting, and I could feel grit in my socks. Soon Chul convinced me to take time to fix my feet so the final lap would feel better. He and Naomi bundled me in a blanket and a down puffy, and for the first time since the start, I let myself sit in the chair. You know the saying, beware the chair. We stripped off my gaiters, shoes, and socks, and Naomi asserted herself with cleaning my toes and popping my blisters. I was impressed. My feet were disgusting, but she didn't wince. Later, I discovered she has a nursing degree, so that helps explain her skilled caregiving. My feet felt better in clean socks and fresh shoes, but the rest of me felt clumsy and cold. In spite of all the layers, I caught a bone-deep chill. I tried to eat what they offered, and I managed a few bites of avocado and a single lump of potato from the potato soup, but food was not my friend on this night. I realized I had to get moving or I would be stuck in that chair. When I stood to move, I nearly fell over. My jaw started spasming with big chatters, and my shoulders got all herky-jerky. When I tried to walk, I stumbled along the quarter-mile paved stretch to the trail, the same stretch I had vowed at the start to always run, and now I could barely walk it. I knew I would feel better once I hit the uphill and my body warmed up again, and that proved true. I could walk and talk more normally after a mile, but I was still cold and stumbling, suffering a case of the stupids foggy in the head. The main thing I recall from Loop 5 is saying to every intersection on the route and every loose rock gully, Goodbye and good riddance. My only source of pleasure derived from knowing I would never have to pass that spot again. Every step, every completed section got me closer to finishing, and that fact sustained me when everything hurt. My lungs hurt when I breathed deeply. My knees hurt when I went down a hill. With every footfall, my feet and quads registered sharp twinges as if being jabbed with a skewer. 
Even my eyeballs hurt when I blinked because my eyes were too dry. On this final loop, my annoying headlamp that gave me a headache dimmed to the point of uselessness, even though I had put fresh batteries in it. Thankfully, I had a handheld light, but it dimmed also. Soontrol's light was strong enough for both of us, so I ran closer by his side. At around mile 90, he paused to swap out his headlamp's battery using the dying light of my flashlight. At that moment, as we huddled in the darkness, cursing our light source, a woman ran by all lighted up with extra bright Kagala lights, the lighting system that works by putting a strip of powerful lights on a hydration pack strap. I had tried to buy Kagala lights right before the race, but they were sold out and backordered, presumably due to supply and distribution problems caused by the pandemic. I felt a wave of jealousy toward this woman. But then she called out, Hey, Sarah. And I realized it was Jess Mullen, whom I like and admire. I was surprised because I thought she had been ahead of me all day. I was glad she was having a good finish. If not me, then her. She would end up finishing second woman in just under 26 hours. I knew I'd fallen way behind my goal of a 25-hour finish, even 26 hours, based on our snail's pace and my two long stops at aid station trying unsuccessfully to choke down food. But I knew I would finish. I just had to get the work done. Every mile dragged. I cheered myself up with the prospect of dawn, and indeed daybreak was lovely. The sun came up, I warmed up enough to take off my down puffy and tie it around my waist, and I kept shuffling forward, repeatedly breaking into a run for a 30-second burst, but then resigning myself to hiking. I just wanted it to be over. Please, make it stop. Naomi thoughtfully had positioned herself at the base of the final hill to await our arrival. Standing in the freezing cold, waiting for us for who knows how long, she remained so cheerful and seemed so excited to see us. I wanted to mirror her enthusiasm, but I just felt badly that I had dragged her and Soontrul out for a night that at the time seemed almost pointless. Thank you so much for being here, I told her. I'm so sorry you had to wait so long. The three of us jogged the short paved stretch to the finish together, and I crossed the line at... 26 hours, 24 minutes, and 56 seconds. At that moment, I did not care. It did not matter. The only thing that mattered to me was going to the bathroom, taking off my gross shorts whose elastic band on the liner had started to chafe my crotch, throwing those shorts in the trash, putting on fresh leggings, and washing my hands with soap. I did all of those things, and then I was able to hang out at the finish line with Soontrul and Naomi, thank them repeatedly, and mention how glad I was to be done. I was informed that I had placed third female, to which I ungratefully replied with an earshot of the race director, well, that must mean this event has a pretty small and uncompetitive field. He looked hurt, and I wished I could take back the remark. But it's true. I should not have earned a podium spot. I got third only because the female finishers numbered a measly seven. I was mid-pack overall, 27th out of 48 finishers. The event had a pretty high DNF rate. Out of 86 starters, 38 dropped. But I was grateful for the third place prize and the buckle because Era Viper does such a cool job designing and laser cutting their awards. I made it back to my hotel room and felt defeated in spite of finishing because I felt so trashed. 
The final 40 miles had been a suffer fest in spite of my pacer's best efforts to support me. My whole body felt damaged. My skin was sunburned. My breathing triggered coughing fits in spite of using an asthma inhaler, and every muscle ached. I could not stop thinking about the summertime high lonesome 100 and second-guessing my desire to run it. Cold water rumble is a much easier 100 than high lonesome. High lonesome will take me around 36 hours instead of 26. Given how weak I felt in the second half of this 100, what am I getting myself into with high lonesome? Then another ultra running friend wisely and kindly messaged, what's the rule some people like to follow? Don't make any decisions a week out from running an ultra, especially a 100. So I'll return to the question I posed near the top. Will I ever again? Predictably, with each passing day this past week, I began to view my mid-race difficulties and discomfort from a new perspective. I felt better about my performance, realizing I did pretty well given the training I put into it. I found myself browsing the entrance list for the High Lonesome 100 and feeling a strong pull to go on that 100-mile journey with the names I recognize on the list. It will be one giant loop, not repeat loops. And it'll be through the collegiate peaks that I want to see up close. The more I think about last weekend's 100, the more I want to train properly this spring and summer to do it right next time. Yes, there will be a next time. And boom. What did you guys think of that? Ah, man, I've listened to that probably four or five times. And every time I'm still absolutely amazed. Um, her storytelling is absolutely incredible. Um, Sarah, cannot thank you enough for taking those written words and sharing them with us here in audio. Um, there's no better way. There's written word or spoken word, but um, I love being able to hear your story come off of your blog into audio and could not be more thankful for you for sharing it with us. Um, the, the amazing thing for me is this now sets a bar of what amazing storytelling can be for audio race reports, but it's also not what it needs to be either. Um, I love that what we're doing is allowing someone like Sarah a voice to share her race reports that are so well written into such an amazing audio version but we're also giving the person like myself <laughs> who wants to share a story but is a bad writer and just wants to get on here and ramble that opportunity to the spectrum has been laid out, right? We can go one way or another. Um, not only does Sarah tell an amazing story, um, there's so much detail in there and you can really feel it through her storytelling. Um, what an amazing experience. Sounds like an amazing race too. Nothing like getting out to Arizona and running a hundred miles in the winter. Um, when most places are pretty miserable to run <laughs> in the winter, unless you're a winter ultra runner. Um, I'm going to share all the places that you can find Sarah and follow along. Like I said, her book's amazing. Go grab it. The runner's companion. Um, you can find more of her blogs and her stories over at therunnerstrip.com. That is where I found her report, and I've read all of them, and I hope 
hopefully we have Sarah on again, sharing another one of her race reports with us because this was absolute gold. Um, thank you guys for listening to episode 11. Thank you, Sarah, again. Please check her out in the show notes. I'll have everything posted there. If you want to send over a race report, please hit us up at theendurancehouse at gmail.com. We have also launched a Patreon page. Um, we want to provide more of these. I don't want to do once a week. I want to do multiple a week, uh, but that needs a little bit of support. So if anyone's enjoying what we're doing um, and wants to hear more, um, help us out over at Patreon. It's the Endurance House. Um, if you go to patreon.com, we would love to start pumping out more of these and building a stronger base and supporting more races out there too, giving you guys more information about what's out there and if you want to run it or not. Um, that's what these race reports do. So thank you again for listening and we'll be back with episode 12 next Thursday. Thursday.